All right. So welcome to the Dr. Budgill podcast. I'm super excited uh, to have Ian Smith here, who is the co-founder of the Attila's Gym. I think you have a partner in your business as well, right? Yep. I'm one of the co-owners. My, my partner's name is Frank Trevetti, um, and we run the Attila's Gym of Belmar. And Belmar. And that's in Belmar, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, you've been all over the news. I think... Uh, I mean, obviously I've been, I'm, I'm in New York, so you've been on the, in like the local news around here, but you've also, I saw you on CNN, I think you were on, uh, on Chris Cuomo's show a little while back. Yep. So just a little background story for folks who may not be familiar with what's been going on. You are, you own a gym, and obviously all gyms have shut down, um, or were ordered to shut down back in, I think for March for you guys also, like at the end of March, like it was in New York? March, March, March 16th was the, uh, was the first day of the shutdown. So March 16th, you know, obviously everyone was very compliant with whatever the rules were initially because no one knew what the hell was going on with COVID and things were just moving so fast. Um, schools were shutting down, restaurants were shutting down, gyms were shutting down, doctor's offices were shutting down. You know, I mean, nearly every everything was. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole the whole world was coming to a screeching halt. And then at some point during all of this, you know, I think all of humanity in in the United States, at least in like New York, New Jersey, where we were really shut down, people just started like really kind of losing their shit a little bit and questioning like, you know, okay, I get it. You know, we did all this for so long. When is the end? What's the plan? You know, why are some things now able to be open and some things have to stay closed? And there really wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason. And, you know, a lot of the rules seemed somewhat arbitrary, you know, like you could do this, but you can't do that. Like, Like for instance, like, you know, I play golf, and when, when when we were allowed to play golf again, you couldn't touch the golf balls at the range, which already come clean. You know, they're cleaned when they're picked up, and they're sitting outside the whole time anyways, and a truck picks them up. They go into a machine, get clean, and get put into a bucket. So you could, And I'm, whoever was handling those balls was using gloves. So you couldn't touch the balls on the range, but you could open up a cooler to grab a bottle of water. So you know, it just, it, it just all the rules really made no sense. And I guess at some point during all of this, you got you and your business partner were like, this just makes no sense. Like, why can't we open our gym safely at this point? And you know, I've read through and I've heard all of the protocols you guys have in place. I mean, it is literally so intense and insane, the level of scrutiny that you're employing to run a safe facility. I mean, I I can't imagine. I think COVID would run away from from your gym just because it's insane um so i mean maybe if you could just speak to that i know i just dropped a lot there but maybe just kind of walk us through what those months were like for you being shut down and what really precipitated saying hey you know what like this makes no sense f this we're opening um you know so you, you kind of hit the nail on the head uh right in march you know we we saw this thing starting to develop uh in the news you know i'm, I'm somebody who I, I always pay attention to the news cycle um you know just I, i've always been interested in politics. I've never been a political person, um, but I've always paid attention to politics. Um, so I, I was watching this kind of unfold as it was starting to, to pick up steam. And I, and I kind of remember I was, um, I was on a bachelor party out in Wyoming, uh, like the last week of February. And um, I just kind of remember thinking like, this is, what is this thing? You know what I mean? I think, I think that's a collective thought that we all had, um, not only as Americans, but worldwide. We didn't know what was coming. We knew that something was coming and we were, we were just bracing for impact. You know, so when they ordered the shutdown, we were not happy about it um, because that's a really scary um, thing that to ask of, of anybody, be it a business owner or anything, like, hey, 
you know, this, this crazy virus is coming and we need you to cease all movement and, you know, lock in your home and, and, and quarantine and stuff. And it's just, it was a very uneasy feeling, I think, for a lot of people, you know, so, but we comply, uh, just like everybody else did, you know, we, in, in, in that circumstance, there wasn't enough information to say no. Um, and although we weren't excited about it, you know, sometimes you kind of have to make sacrifices for the greater good. So we said, all right, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's shut down. Let's, let's give them their 14 days. Um, and we did. Um, but Frank and I, we're not the type to ever really stop working. You know, and we own a nutrition store, uh, supplement and nutrition store inside the gym. So we were coming still to the gym every single day, um, you know, and, and we knew from day one that whenever we reopened that business was going to be very different, at least for some time, that we were going to have to operate differently. Um, so we started working right away on what, what, what would it look like in a, in, in a COVID environment? You know, what would business look like for us? So we began to plan and plan and, and we, we did our homework and we were reading the executive orders. We were reading all the statements put out by the CDC, the WHO, the president, the press, all that, trying, trying to figure out what this thing was. Um, and very quickly, we started to smell smoke. Um, and it was, it, it, it smelled political um, almost, almost right away. You know, you see the, you see the politicians immediately uh, divide kind of right down the center um, where policies on the left and policies on the right are almost opposite. And you saw it with the stimulus bill. You know, they wanted to pass the stimulus bill and right away, you know, politicians being politicians, they both put forth equally crappy bills. Um, you know, and that this was part of the deal of shutting down was, hey, don't worry, Americans, we got you. You know, we, we won't let anything bad happen to you small business owners, individuals, whatever it is, we got you, we're gonna pass this great stimulus package. And of course it fell laughably short as it always does. Um, you know, so, but the thing that really started to, to be a red flag for us was 11 days into the shutdown, they passed a 2.4 or $2.6 trillion stimulus bill. And in that stimulus bill, they were giving people money for 16 weeks. You know, and it's like, if we're talking about a virus with an incubation period of two weeks, why, why 11 days in are we already planning for 16 weeks of unemployment? You know what I mean? And, and that, that was our first kind of red flag. So at that point, we really started to look at what else is going on here. And, um, and very quickly, you know, two weeks turned into three, three turned into four, uh, a month turned into a month and a half. And at, at, the, at the seven week mark, Frank and I sat down and we said, all right, they asked for 14 days. We're at seven weeks. What do we do? Um, there was zero plan put forth to reopen. There wasn't even talk of reopening. It was, you know, the, the goalposts had already started to move. Um, and that, that 14 days was very quickly gone. Um, and, and the politicians weren't talking about that anymore. They were talking about you know, they were on to the, the scare tactics of COVID where, you know, they were just, it, all, all they want to talk about it is the bad. They weren't putting forth any solutions. It's be afraid, stay home, you know, don't question anything we say, you know, um, clean everything around you, disinfect the entire world, sterilize everything, don't touch anything, don't go anywhere. And I'm, I'm by, by no means am I a doctor, um, but I have been working in the health industry for quite a long time 
um, and and the policies that they were that they were talking about don't seem to be sh strong public health policies because in in any of this they didn't mention the idea of individual health and it, it, if you're talking about public health you need to have a conversation about individual health too because that's where public health begins um, you can't just make these broad sweeping strokes and and call it a public health policy you, you, you can't have public health without individuals um, and I noticed that it wasn't any talk about that. It wasn't any talk about how do we get healthy? How do we stay healthy? How do we bolster our immune system? So it was political and it was very, very clearly political. And for every day and week that went forward, it became more and more apparent. So at seven weeks, Frank and I sat down and we collected all of the information that we had. We, um, we, we read the studies, we read the newest studies on coronavirus, the, how it was transmitted and, and you know, whether asymptomatic people were actually infecting people and everything that we could get our hands on. So using all that information, we put together a 15 month safety protocol. Um, and we said, all right, this is, this is our plan. Since the government asked for 14 days, we're at week seven. Nobody's talking about reopening gyms. We, uh, and we, we received no aid. Uh, our bills are still due. We got to get back in business because the, the world just doesn't work like that. There's not a pause button on the global economy. You know, um, and we were watching the fallout. Business is already failing seven weeks in. Um, and, and if we didn't do something, we were going to be one of those businesses. So we put together a plan. Uh, and I, I went on social media. And at the time, I had a, a, a small following at about 20,000 followers of, of, you know, the, the fitness Instagram and, and, you know, followers at the gym and local. And I put out a video uh, and it was, it was an announcement. It was the who, what, where, and why. You know, I talked about the, the shutdown. I talked about what we planned on doing, how we were going to do it, and why we wanted to. And we put it forth publicly so that we weren't being openly defiant. We weren't just opening our doors and um, throwing a middle finger up to, to the government. This was about, hey, you guys have not put a forth plan. We have one. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Let's, let's get moving on this. You know, let, let's get the ball rolling and talking about solutions and just stop talking about fear um, and death. And, and, you know, and, and in addition, another thing that really set us off was these death counts were skewed almost immediately. You know, um, there was all these reports coming out that there was no, at least for a, a long part in the initial part, there was no distinguishing between dying of COVID and dying from COVID. And every, everybody, I, I don't need to recap that. No one, no one had um, an attack. No one had, uh, you know, you know no one died of it. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it stuck, like I said, we started smelling smoke and it's like, okay, if this thing's as scary, because remember, they said 2.2 million people would be dead by summer. That was, that was Fauci's original uh, warning to us, you know, and it's like, all right, well, why are we, why are we cushioning the death numbers if this thing is as scary as, as you made it out to be? So we put the forth the plan publicly um, because we had hopes that, you know, in an American system of government, people are uh, elect leaders and leaders work for the people. They, uh, and, and working for the people, you should work with the people. So we presented that plan. Uh, and to date, no, no politician has ever reached out or no public health official has ever reached out uh, to consult with us or to talk about this plan. So uh, we put it out there and we said we were gonna, we were gonna, we were gonna do it. Um, it attracted the attention of a local media guy named Rich Zioli. He runs a radio show out of Philadelphia, um, and we went on to talk about that. 
And that night, Tucker Carlson called and said, I want you on the show. Um, and that's kind of where the can of gas hit the fire. Um, and that was, that was the point in an overturn where, you know, we said, hey, we're opening. Um, and then the following Monday, we, we reopened. Um, and that's kind of where the story really kicked off. What date? When was that? Well, that was in May sometime? Oh, it was May 18th. That was exactly, exactly two months into the shutdown. Wow. You know, it's interesting. So I've, I've listened to a lot of your interviews and I've read a lot of the stuff and, you know, obviously seen a lot of your social media stuff. And I think a lot of people like on the, like the far right are kind of like leaning in, leaning into the message, you know I mean? And I also think that people will, I don't have no idea what your politics are. I don't know anything about it. And I think people will automatically assume that you're some diehard, crazy Republican or something or whatever it may be. But I have to, and like, you know, Tucker Carlson and being on Fox and that sort of stuff. Right. But yeah, absolutely. Comes, comes with the territory. Right. So I'm a, I'm a doctor, you know, I stayed open during, I stayed open, but a very limited amount, but for the same reason, like it just didn't make sense. All the dermatologists in New York city, more or less with the, the exception of a, a handful of us, they all closed down. There was all this pressure on social media that, oh, we're doing the responsible thing. We're shutting down uh, because of COVID. We don't want to sp- spread COVID, whatever, you know, but my whole thought was this, as a doctor, like you, you don't run away from a pandemic. You run towards it. Like, you know, that's our job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're supposed to be here doing this stuff. And just going back to my point, every point that you've made, it's, it's like, it's, I don't know how a rational individual could say that that doesn't make sense. You know, like you're, it's their right spot on points. And, and I was watching the interview that when you guys were on Chris Cuomo and he was, you know, he was playing devil's advocate. Um, you know, but you know, as kind of, he wasn't doing it sincerely as a devil's advocate. He was just kind of like saying, Hey, these are the arguments on the other side. And both of you, both you and your partner, the answers that you gave, it just made total sense. Like, Hey, listen, this is what we're doing. We're 20% capacity. We're have all these filters. We're starting, you know, we're cleaning all the machines. We're doing the, I mean, all of everything that you said is like so much more than I've ever even seen in like a restaurant when you can go eat, you know, eat outside a restaurant now. And I'll tell you that some of the other stupid stuff that I've seen is like, you know, when before everything shut down, they told restaurants in Long Island and Nassau County that you're only allowed to have 50% of capacity, you know, in your restaurant. So one of the restaurants that we went to literally put all of the tables and 50% of the restaurant. So everyone was on top of each other. It was half the amount of people, but everyone was like right on top of each other. I was like, you know, it just makes no sense, you know, and that's, and that's compliant with the law. But there's no common yeah. sense that's there. You know, yours, your arguments and your, you know, basically your stance is a common sense-based stance. Like, hey, we, none of us know much about corona, but a lot of the stuff that we know obviously is not true because the story has changed so many times. And this is coming from me as a doctor. So many times the story has changed. You know, like, are, are healthy people spreading the disease? Are, you know, there's a lot of stuff now saying that it's symptomatic people that are spreading the disease. Um, you know, there's just, there's, so much conflicting data just because there's not a lot of data and that's just the nature yeah. of it, you know but at some point i mean i this is being in new my, i have an office in new york city and you know a couple of weeks ago i posted about this i was walking around the west village where my where my office is and you know restaurants that i've known since i grew up in new york that you know since my teenage years that are just sort of like institutions of the village none of them opened back up and this yeah. is the end of june point, beginning of july into june something like that those restaurants are never coming back. I mean, there's no no small business can sustain being shut down for two weeks. I mean, let alone three months, you know? And at some point, like, you know, just for the health of 
you guys are in the fitness industry for the health of people, obviously working on, and I'm a huge fitness nut and I, and I, I, I totally get that angle. We're going to get into that in a minute, but for the, you know, for the health of society, like people need to work, people, people need who have businesses need to run their businesses and they're, you can't just say, okay, everything is shut down now for good. At some point, you know, like you guys did at two months. Okay. This is our plan. This is how we're going to do it safely. And, um, we're presenting it to you. If there's a problem with this plan, then, you know, let us know. We can tweak it. And, you know, we yeah, can let's talk about it. Institute, you know, uh, what you may think is safer. Maybe they have, there are some better ways to do it. Who the hell knows, you know, but I can't, I haven't found a better way to do it than the way you guys are doing it. Um, you know, so I get it, man. And I get it. And it's, but I think the pushback from the government is like, Hey, if we let one person do this, then everyone's then you know, we're going to lose total control and everyone's going to go haywire. I think what it should be is present us with a plan. If it seems reasonable, then, you know, on an individual basis, small basis, small businesses should have the ability to reopen. Yeah. And it's there, there, we had a lot of issues with all of this and, and, and part of it was the, the, the hypocrisy um, and, and the lack of common sense, what it was just like a, it's astounding. Um, you know, Walmart, the Home Depot, all these big box retailers with these huge lobbying organizations, they were able to operate from day one without issue at all. And the amount of safety protocol that they put in place was laughable. You know, it's, it's like all of a sudden coronavirus can't get you in Walmart as long as you slap, uh, you know, a, a mask that you bought from Etsy over your face. Um, that isn't even a, a KN95 mask. It's just some, some cloth. Um, and then you're good. You know, you grab a Lysol wipe and you wipe the front of your, uh, your cart down and all of a sudden you're, you're good to go. Meanwhile, there's like, there's no temperatures being taken. They're not, and, and they're not even enforcing this stuff. You know, they, first they had uh, limited capacity, but then very shortly after that, you know, that went by the wayside. They, they did that for maybe a week or so before they got bored and went back to operating as normal. And it's like, you're letting these mega corporations operate with impunity and you're not regulating them. Like to, 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 to even act like you are is, it's an insult. Like you're, you're not going around and checking these things. Um, and then, but that's okay. But you're, you're villainizing small businesses as if we're the actual cause of, of the spread of the coronavirus. And it's like, no, let's, let's, let's walk this back a little bit. You know, let's, let's look at some of the numbers. And then when you look at the numbers, it's like, hmm, now this really doesn't make sense because you saw that even, even with the lockdowns, you saw in places like LA County when they were doing the antibody tests, I believe they did them up in New York and in Florida as well, that the virus continued to spread even with the lockdown measures in place. You know, I think it, at one point or even early on in LA County, I forget the exact statistic, I think it was 10% of the population um, was testing positive for the antibodies, which was like 5 million people or something like that. And that was in the middle of the, of the, the lockdown, you know, but <clears throat> when you start looking at who's been dying, over 50% of the deaths throughout the entire country, especially in states of like California, New York, New Jersey, uh, Michigan, and there's another one, uh, Pennsylvania, the decision was made to put COVID positive patients into long-term care facilities. And the people that are in charge of our public health, our governors, our, our health department, they made that decision. And they, they, they justified that decision by saying, oh, well, we didn't want to overflow the hospitals. Well, you know, I call BS on that because 
even with the overflow hospitals that were built, you know, up in New York, you had the, the, the Navy ship. Uh, down here in Philadelphia, you had the Wells Fargo Center. They built out a billion dollar or, or multi-million dollar uh, build out that was never even used. Those deaths in those places are a direct result of very bad policy. And they, they account for over 50% of the deaths. So if you take if you take that 50% away, take that policy away, our death rate, maybe it's not 50%, maybe it's, it's whatever, but it's, it's going to be significantly lower. Now, can you still criticize small businesses for the spread of coronavirus and, and the fallout of coronavirus? No, you, where's the responsibility of these people who made these policies? But they don't want to talk about it. They, they dodge the question and they keep just saying that small businesses are the problem, you know, that that hair salons and nail salons. And it's like, no, you guys, you guys messed up big time here. Um, so that was a major issue for us, especially with the big box retailers having almost no protocol in place. You know, um, it, it just, the amount of double think that you need to be able to pull off to still buy into coronavirus as it's sold is, is absolutely incredible. You, you have to hold so many uh, opposing positions on things that it's, it's just, it's astounding. Um, and, and it just got to the point where we said, you know what, en enough is enough. Enough is enough. We're, 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 we're opening. We're, we're going to stay open. Uh, it is our constitutional rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that are being trampled on. It's our, it's our First Amendment rights. We are being abused by these policies, and especially when you have these governors who are putting forth these measures and saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, you're not allowed to do that. And they're all getting caught doing exactly what they tell you not to do. Governor Murphy, no indoor dining. If you Google Governor Murphy indoor dining, you could find 20 pictures of him eating in restaurants. Um, Governor Gretchen up in, in Michigan, you know, she was telling people in Michigan that they weren't allowed to quarantine in their summer lake home. And that same weekend when she put it out, she was there. And it's like, you can't, you can't expect people to comply with what you're saying when you won't even listen to your own rules. Yeah. So it just, it got to the point where it was like, okay, enough is enough. This is, this is not about public health because you guys have still yet to talk about individual health and liquor stores are open. Tobacco sales are open. They even beyond liquor stores, they had delivery alcohol and pick up alcohol from restaurants. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, you, <laughs> you can't convince me that that's sound public health policy. Because fast food, fast food stores are open. And if, if, you, if you start looking at the science, fast food has been shown to, uh, to accelerate the mutation of viruses in the body. You know, uh, alcohol, shown to lower your immune system. Isolation um, or social isolation is, is shown to have negative effects on mental health, which just feeds right back into your immune system. So none of it was making any sense. And, and that's what we set out to do. We set out to make sense of it. And we set out to be very loud in doing so because we wanted, it wasn't just about our gym opening. We wanted the world or we wanted the country to, 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 to stop just being afraid. And, and, and not that you can't respect COVID, you know, because COVID is a real thing. None of us ever debate that. My partner, Frank, lost his mother to it in the middle of it. Um, so it wasn't, about, it wasn't about that, but it was about sensible policy. Yeah. You, you can, you can operate your business and you can resume your life without just throwing everything by the wayside. And 
you can respect public health at the same time. And you can, you can, you can care for other, you can care for yourself and for others at the same time. It's about being responsible. You know, we're all adults and we're free citizens in a free country. Um, and, and our government should have more faith in us to be responsible citizens. You know, it's, it's this nanny state that is, that is really kind of alarming. Like that's not, government's, government's job is not to protect your health. I know, I know that that's, that some people think that way. Um, and, and that might be an auxiliary job, uh, but their primary job is to protect your life. Um, and they, they fail at protecting our health, uh, first of all, especially with the senior centers. But then on top of that, they failed to, to uphold our rights. You know, Governor Murphy himself went on Tucker Carlson and said the Bill of Rights was above A grade and that in his policymaking, he wasn't thinking about the Bill of Rights. Like that's, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear an oath to protect the constitution when you take these jobs. So either you BS your way through an oath and didn't read the constitution or you just don't care. And either of them is not a good scenario for an elected leader. Right. I'm, man, I'm, I'm with you. I hear, I hear all that. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what exactly specifically has been going on. I mean, you've been arrested multiple times. Your gym has been like barricaded. You had to like break into your gym. Just when did all that stuff go down? Because like, you know, you opened and how, how soon after you opening did like you guys, you know, get, get start getting in trouble? And I know you got like whatever, a gajillion dollars. I mean, literally like you're getting fined like 10,000 bucks a day or something like that, right? $15,546 and like 76 cents a day or something like that. Um, so part of the reason that we garnered the media attention is that we knew that we, we hoped that government would want to work with us, but we, we kind of knew that they weren't going to. Um, and we knew that if we didn't have all eyes on us, that we would get squashed like a bug. So when we reopened, um, we reopened on Monday, May 18th, um, to an interview with Pete Hegseth standing on our, our front step, um, national media coverage once again. And uh, Monday kicked off. We, we, we actually barricaded ourselves inside the building Sunday night because the state police were told not to grant us access. Uh, so we, we, we had some volunteers. We chained ourselves in. We slept the night through. Um, and then we opened the doors Monday morning couple hundred people out in the parking lot, a line wrapped around the building with all of our members, um, every news media company, uh, agency in, in, in the media area and, and national as well, all there. So Monday kind of was fine. There was police in the parking lot. There were a lot of, um, there was a lot of supporters. We had everybody from just local kind of people who are very middle of the road in, in, in their political ideologies. And we, we definitely attracted um, the right wing at first. Um, a lot of Trump supporters out there, a lot of people who um, are more conservative, but we did, we did have a lot of people who were very much in, in, in the center and a lot of people who were on the left too. Um, but you saw a lot of the Trump flags and stuff like that. So we reopened. Um, the day was proceeding as normal. There was a heavy police presence in the parking lot. Sorry to cut you off, man. So what were you guys, so you had a line going around the block. Were you just letting like six people in at a time for an hour or something? Like how did you guys logistically handle um, So we originally set out with a 20% capacity based on our square footage. Um, so according to the International Fire Code, 
for gyms and health clubs, I believe that's 50 square feet per person or something like that. It works out to, uh, and we have a 15,000 square foot facility. So it allowed us, um, and we were actually under 20%, but we, we capped it off at 44 members, uh, for that first week. Um, just so that we could for like an hour, like did they have a limited amount of time to stay? Yeah. So what we were doing was, um, because we, we expected a high demand, we, we were doing 44 people in at a time. Once that last person, uh, went through our safety protocol, the timer started and they had an hour and 15 minutes okay. to get done their workout. And then after that hour and 15 minutes, uh, we would come through, everybody would leave, uh, all of our volunteers. We had about 10 volunteers and then Frank and I, we would come through and we had misters, we had foggers. We came through, did a clean sweep of the facility and then started all over again. Um, so on Monday, right around 12 o'clock, um, the police approached us um, and said that they want to speak with us. The crowd kind of got a little uh, unsettled um, and, and, and I, I quieted the, the crowd down, asked everybody to let them speak and the captain of the local police force, and they knew that we were going to do this ahead of time. We, we contacted them. A lot of them are our members. So captain came up and he said, you know, and it, it's a video that went kind of viral. Um, he said, you know, formally you're all in violation of an executive order. Um, and then he paused and took a deep breath and said, on that note, have a nice day and turned and walked away. Um, and that was like this moment where we were like, oh my God, like we did it. And uh, very short-lived, a half hour later, Governor Murphy put pressure on the local police force and told them that they were going to be furloughed for 60 days if they didn't um, come in and give a citation. So we got our first round of citations that day. Um, and then we just kept on working. Uh, Tuesday, we got more citations. Our members started to get citations. One of our members got arrested. Um, and then it started from there. It just started to ratchet up more and more and more. Uh, on Wednesday, they set up cameras in the parking lot. They stopped giving us tickets because we were accepting the, the citations in front of the media and they, that was just bad optics for them. Um, so they were mailing our tickets to our lawyers and then our members, they were setting up the cameras in the parking lot and they were pulling them over down the street and giving them tickets there for violation of governor's orders. Late Wednesday night or, or on Wednesday, Governor Murphy had a press conference and he said that he was going to bring the health department into it. And on Wednesday night at about 11 o'clock at night, somebody walked up to our door and slapped a, uh, a notice of embargo, which is a health department shutdown um, without ever stepping foot inside of our building, without ever contacting us, nothing. They just walked up, no due process. They slapped it on the building, said, you're shut down, end of story. Um, and the reason, the reason was because coronavirus, essentially. Um, so on Thursday, we didn't open because we... Frank and I set out not to break the law. We, you know, through all this, we maintain innocence. Um, we have not broken any laws. We've disobeyed executive orders. They are not laws. Um, and and we, didn't, we didn't start this to become criminals. Uh, we did this because we, we, we truly believe we were doing what was right. So Thursday, um, we allow our lawyers to look over uh, what that health department shutdown was. And they told us that it, basically it was BS. So Friday, we reopened. Uh, we had a good day on Friday. Uh, more citations came. At that point, we were having about 400 people come to the gym all day. Um, and then late Friday night, um, we received a, um, a notice that Governor Murphy had gone in front of uh, his favorite judge here in New Jersey, uh, Robert Lugie, um, who used to be an attorney general and is uh, kind of just signs off on anything Murphy wants. 
and he issued a court order to obey the shutdown um, and issued the state the ability to come and physically change our lock. Um, so they came in the middle of the night, they, they broke our lock, they changed them on us and locked us out. Um, about three weeks went by um, and we, we got the locks changed because we have a nutrition, a nutrition store inside and they locked us out of essential business. And the, um, the promise was, we'll let you guys back in as long as you don't utilize the inside. And we said, okay, as long as we get our day in court, you know, because we had a federal lawsuit against Murphy at that time. Um, we, we said, we'll play nice. Uh, we were dragging 45,000 pounds worth of equipment and machines out every day into the parking lot, setting up a makeshift gym. Our day in court never came. Um, and to date, any motion that we have filed against Governor Murphy in federal or in state court has not even been heard. The judges are just abstaining um, and they're, they're just stalling the process. Meanwhile, anything Governor Murphy wants, when he files a motion, he gets us in court that day. He'll file a motion at eight o'clock, we'll be in court at 12. Um, so, you know, and, and the reason that we backed off was we, we wanted to allow the judicial system to work. You know, in our opinion, the executive branch of government had failed us. The governor, the governor was failing the people. He was mistreating us, you know, but in the American system of politics, you have checks and balances. That's why we have our three branches of government. We said, okay, we'll back off. We'll play nice. We'll abide by the rules. We'll take stuff outside. Um, just so long as the judicial system does what it's supposed to do. And that doesn't mean necessarily rule in our favor. That means we get a fair day in court. And to date, we have not. So on July 4th, we said, you know what? Enough is enough. Uh, we're keeping the equipment inside. We're opening up. Come arrest us on Independence Day. Uh, we'd love you to. And uh, that day didn't come. And we stayed open inside. Uh, and once people found out we were open inside, our capacity almost doubled overnight uh, because people, people aren't a fan of working out in the 90 degree heat on, on blacktop. Um, you know, we, we had our diehard people there, but you know, we also have a, we have a, a large population of older people who work out here. And you know, when you're in your sixties and seventies, we have some, some Vietnam war vets and stuff like that, some salty old dogs who come and they can't be outside doing that. So um, we operated inside for three weeks. We were served with a contempt of court uh, notice and uh, Murphy once again got his way. And um, at that point, the judge ordered once again that our locks be changed. So Frank and I took a desperate measure and we took the, the doors right off of the hinges. Um, and at that point, you know, it was come lock our doors, we don't have any. And we had the doors actually removed from the property, uh, stashed at a house several miles away. Um, we opened the gym 24 hours a day and Frank and I uh, began sleeping at the facility. So. We brought air mattresses. This is actually our office slash bedroom. Uh, we sleep in shifts and um, we said, we're not leaving. We're, we're not leaving. You're not going to lock us out of our business. One of the worst feelings I've ever had in the world was having a government official come to my business, a place that I've built that, that I feed my family with and lock the doors on me and say, you're not allowed to be here. And I, I can speak for Frank when I say this, we decided that that was never going to happen again. Um, especially in the absence of due process. To date, they have not presented any science that proves that this facility or any gym or indoor dining or movie theater or all these places that they say are high risk, they haven't actually presented any science that says this place is more dangerous than, say, a public transportation bus that you can operate at 100% capacity with 60 people and a bus driver in 340 square feet, no temperatures, da 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 da. They have not put the science forth. So, and, and to date, we, we 
we stay the claim that if you can present that information to us, we will shut down. We, we, we have no bad intentions here. And, and if you can show to us that our facility is a place that puts people in danger, we will absolutely shut down. But that's not the case. Um, and in fact, as of this morning, we have 25,546 visits to the facility since our reopening. Not a single case has been reported. We have an extensive uh, tracking system that we implemented ourselves. Um, so uh, we took the doors off the hinges. We began sleeping here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That lasted about seven days. They came in uh, early Monday morning at five o'clock in the morning and they arrested us. Uh, they took us out in handcuffs uh, and booked us. And when we returned later that day, there was plywood barricade over our doors. Uh, they had entered the building without permission and boarded it up. Uh, so we took a couple days to kind of recharge. And that following Saturday, uh, we announced it. Again, the one thing we've never done is hide in any of this. You know, uh, we were very open about what we've been doing every step of the way. Uh, and that Saturday, we, uh, we had a crowd out in the parking lot supporting us, TV cameras, all that stuff. And uh, Frank and I kicked the barricade down. Um, walked right in, turned the lights on, turned the music on, and reopened the gym. Um, and we've been, we've been doing so ever since. Now Governor Murphy has gone back to court in another contempt of court order um, and requested that we be fined $15,546 a day, um, that we pay uh, litigants, uh, violation of litigants' rights fees in the amount of $46,000 a lump sum, and that we pay the attorney general's fees of about $11,000 as well. Uh, so that, at this point, we're well over $300,000 in fines. They've stripped us of our business license, uh, again, without due process. They didn't show any evidence. They just said, you're a danger to the public. We said, please show us the evidence. They said, no, let's take a vote, five to one. Um, and we were actually told what the vote was going to be beforehand. We were, we were told by an anonymous email, somebody on that council or somebody in the town who works in government and said, this is coming directly from Governor Murphy. Uh, this is pressure being put on the mayor. The vote is going to be five to one. Here's the person that's going to vote against you. Everybody, or here's the person that's going to vote for you. Here's why he's going to vote for you because he's a small business owner himself. Because he understands all the rest of these guys are going to vote yes to strip your business license. So that's where we're at now. Um, 24 hours a day, or we're still here 24 hours a day. Out of the past 30 some days, Frank and I have left one time each. Um, we sleep here, we live here, we work here. Um, my dog stays here with me. Um, we're we are not shutting down until you give us science that shows what, because all, all they've been doing this whole time is conclusionary statements. All they've said is, you're a threat because I said so. And I don't care if you're an elected official, just because you say something doesn't make it true. You, you still have the burden of proof. And again, if you can show us that, we'll shut down. Um, so that was, that's kind of the, the latest update. And as of recently, uh, we had a, uh, a, 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 um, a candidate for Senate re reach out. His name is Rick Maida. He's running for Senate against Cory Booker. Uh, he reached out last week and wanted uh, to help. And since Governor Murphy has made this political, um, the Attila's Gym is now a political rally and volunteer location for the Rick Maida for Senate campaign. Uh, so we will not be shutting down. Wow, man. That, that, that was a mouthful. I got a lot. I got a lot of questions. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the short version too. I, mean, I got. I mean, that's such a badass story in so many ways, man. 
Um, are you married, kids? Any of that stuff? No, I have a girlfriend, and we have um, her 15-year-old son lives with us. Okay. And what's her take on? Uh, I have a family. Yeah. So what's like? So what's like? Um, take on, on all this stuff. Well, it's it's tough. They support you, but it's you know it's got to be like a lot of stress. Yeah. Them. It's 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 very tough. It's tough for Frank's wife. It's it's tough for my girlfriend. Right. Um. You know, this is this is our entire life. Right. Twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. This is all Frank and I have done for the past six months. Even even before we reopened, we were here. We were we were we have read every word of every executive order. We've listened to every minute of every press conference. We've 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 read the studies, um, and we continue to read the studies. We uh, we're constantly revising our plan. I mean, we have sixty five hundred COVID tests on site. Um, we're constantly evolving, trying to figure out what next. What can we do to stay in business? How do we do it? So, and that's that's it's been a lot. So our family life has suffered greatly, and 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 our loved ones suffer greatly for it because. We can't be husbands. We can't be sons. We can't be brothers to to our family because we are fighting for our lives at this point. And if we if we let off the gas at all, um, we lose. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 really tough on them. Yeah, I feel for you and I feel for them, man. It's it is a very tough situation, man. Is your gym kind of like like the big gym around here is Bev's gym? I'm sure you know. You know, like yeah. Mm-hmm. Is your gym kind of like similar vibe, like? Like, yeah, it is. It's a, so we're, uh, we're a bunch of misfits here at the gym. Um, we're all united by one thing. Um, and that's people come here to really, really work. Um, we have bodybuilders, powerlifters, strongmen. We have athletes, we have, uh, pro athletes, college athletes. We're just regular people. Um, but there's, there's an energy in the gym where you come here. And one thing you don't see a lot of is you know, you go to a lot of gyms these days and there's these like sterile kind of like library environments yeah. where everybody's got their headphones in and everybody's kind of head down. This is a place where everybody hears family. We know every single person by name. We know their backstory and everybody knows each other. Um, so, yes, it is, it is very much like, like, like a bed's gym. It's a place where people who are very serious about their health in whatever capacity that is, uh, go to, to train and to, to exercise their right to, to individual health. Yeah. I love that. I love I've worked out at Bev's a few times. Um, and it's, I just, I love the vibe in there. I remember <laughs> before I went there for the first time, my, but the buddy who took me there is like, he's like, dude, this isn't like Equinox or like these other gyms. He's like, this is like a real hardcore. Yes. Fancy, but it's like, you know, but there's like, you go there, there's like all these, like, you know, there's like, you know, celebrity bodybuilders and all these sorts of like hardcore fitness folks. And for some reason, I just like, I, I felt like your gym was like a similar vibe, like a real old school kind of bodybuilding type or, you know, yeah. gym. Yeah. Um, what's your background, man? Cause you're a very, very bright guy. Uh, like, do you, like, were you always into fitness? Do you have like a, a background in like, you know, like law or something like, you know, well, I, um, I am, I'm just, I'm just a regular guy. I mean, there's nothing, I, I don't have any special qualifications. I, it took me 10 years to get through college. You know, I, I switched majors so many times. Um, I actually went to prison for six years, uh, in my twenties. Um, for- you know, I just, uh, uh, when I was 19, when I was 20 years old, right after my 20th birthday, 
uh, I was leaving college to, to go home for the weekend, uh, and I got in a very bad, I, I was the cause of a very, very bad motor vehicle accident in which the other driver lost their life. Oh. Um, and the, the law is very clear there. Um, I was driving extremely recklessly, uh, and there was actually alcohol present in my system from the night before. I didn't drink and drive that night, uh, but I had drank in such excess that um, not only was I hungover, but I had, uh, I had more than enough alcohol in my system to compromise my decision making. Um, so at 20 years old, I, I caused the death of another young man at 19. Um, and on my 21st birthday, right after I went into prison for, for five and a half years, I served five and a half out of a six year sentence. So anything that I've learned is just through life experience. You know, uh, in prison, I, I, I had to really, really reassess who I was um, in order to, to deal with, with, with the consequences of my actions and to, to be okay and carry on. Um, and, and one of the ways that I did was, it, in order for me to make peace with, with what my actions had done, um, I decided that, that I was going to radically improve who I was and that, that, that hopefully I could give enough to the world um, in my later years and I could do enough good um, and I could help enough people that it would at least mitigate the damage slightly that I had done. You know, there's, there's nothing I could ever do to mend the heart that my actions broke. Um, and there was, there's no way I could ever bring back young men who passed away. Um, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't just sit around and feel sorry for myself um, and, or, or, or blame others or whatever it was. I had to take responsibility for it. And, and I had to, I had to find a workable solution so that two lives weren't lost because one life, one life was already lost. And if I didn't make anything of myself and if I didn't do anything with my life, then I, I personally felt like that was disrespectful to the, to the young man who passed away. Um, because I, I, for some, for some reason, I, I had been given the opportunity to continue on, you know, and, and I shouldn't have, quite frankly. Um, he should have walked away from that accident and, and I should have been the one who passed away. So I, I felt like it was my personal responsibility for the rest of my life to, to try to just be a good person. Cause I wasn't, I, I, I won't go so bad to say I was a bad person, but I didn't, I wasn't necessarily a good one. I was a selfish teenager who didn't give a, a, a damn about anybody else. Um, and that was reflective in my actions. You know, I was, I was driving down a back road doing 60 some miles per hour. You know, that's, that's reckless to, to the, to the nth degree. Right. Um, and that's, that was very indicative of, everything I did at that age. I didn't care about others. It was, what did I want to do and, and how do I get it done? Um, and that was a really hard lesson for me that I had to learn that your actions affect others uh, in big ways. So part of the way, like I said, part of the way that I, I started to deal with it was I realized how powerful your individual action can be. Um, and knowing that I educated and, and improved myself so that my actions could be good ones. And I could, I could radiate some good out into the world instead of the type of damage that I had done before. Wow. So my background, I'm just somebody who's, you know, I, I've, I've lived a, a weird life, to say the least. Um, I was never really good in school. I, I was always good in school growing up. I didn't care. Uh, I was one of those kids who could um, <clears throat> sleep in the back of the class 
never open a textbook and get a B minus C plus, And I was happy with that. Um, most of my education is, is self-taught. You know, I, I read a lot in prison. I would, I would, I would read three, four books a week. Um, and I would read them. Um, I read everything I, I would read. Uh, I would be reading three, three books at a time. I would read one that was like a personal development or a spirituality or a self-help book. I would read something that was like a nonfiction, uh, be that like a history or a business or a finance book. And then I would read, um, my, my stepfather, um, is a very, very well-educated man. And he was, um, determined to get me to read the classics. Uh, so I read things like, uh, like Anne Rand, Atlas Shrugged, uh, all of the Sherlock Holmes, like all these classic pieces of literature. Um, and I, I would read, I, I would digest books like means nothing else and that's also where i got into fitness and that's where i started that was for me i didn't really care about my health beforehand you know um but for some odd reason i walked away from that accident and i was given a second chance and and that was my awakening where i was like wow this is life is life is really fragile life is really precious and it can be gone with no fault of your own in the blink of an eye um and so I started to get into fitness, but when I, when I went to prison, you know, what they do is they strip everything from you. They strip your name, you're given a number, they strip your clothes, you're given a uniform, they strip your freedom of movement, your freedom of communication, you know, you name it, they take almost everything away from you. Um, but the one thing that I could do, no matter what, no matter what was going on, whether I was being shipped off to another place or there were riots going on or there were lockdowns going on or whatever, even just regular prison life. The one thing I could do no matter what is I could get down on the ground. I could do some push-ups, I could, I could work out. Um, and that was something that, that I could physically anchor to, um, in, in the, the new chaos of, of my life at that point. You know, I was just a, I was a kid from the suburbs. You know, I had gotten in trouble before, but it's a, you know, misdemeanor getting caught with a joint, you know, at a concert kind of thing. Um, and that was, that was my anchor. That was my, my form of stress relief. That was my form of, um, mental health. Um, that was something that no matter what, nobody could take that from me. Um, and that was, that was how I survived. That was how I got through prison because two things happen when you go to prison, you either come out worse or you come out better. Uh, and the majority of people come out worse. So all of the the negative attributes that you may have, you know, for me, I was selfish, you know, it was one of them. Um, for some people it's angry, whatever it is, all of these negative attributes. If you don't actively work to improve yourself there, you will come out worse. You'll come out more selfish, more angry, more violent, more hostile, whatever. Um, and I didn't want to be one of those people. You know, I, I, I wanted to come out better. You know, I didn't, I didn't want that to be the last chapter of my story. Where, you know, oh, hey, you remember, you remember Ian, I went to high school with that kid. Yeah, he went to prison, whatever happened to him. Oh, you know, now he's, now he's a, a career criminal or now he's a drug addict or whatever. Um, I wanted to make something of myself. And I, I, like I said, I wanted to, to bring something to the world of value because I hadn't given anything up until that point. Um, so I was very determined on, on fixing all of those things about myself. Um, and that's, that's kind of what made me who I am today. It, 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 it forced me to slow down. It forced me to really, really reassess. It forced me to question who I was, what my core values are. Um, and you know, that's, that's what made me the, uh, the persona that you see today.
I love that, man. You just, you said so many things there, man. And, uh, a few things I want to ask you. One is, did you work at all with a mental health care professional? Like when you're in prison, is that even an option? Like, you know, cause you had to work through some serious stuff. They, they do have the option. Um, <laughs> you're not going to get, you're not going to get a whole lot of help. Right. Um, what I did and, and I'm not a, a very religious person. Um, I consider myself an agnostic. Um, but I, I did go to church services because that was a place for me to talk to people um, who were outside of the prison. And, and it was a way for me to escape prison for just a moment and <clears throat> talk about the bigger questions mm-hmm. in life. You know, so that was a big part. I went to church services and there was actually there was a guy who would come in uh, like once a month and he would uh, host a, 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 a small group on, on Buddhism. Um, so that was, and that's where I actually got introduced to, to Buddhism, which is not really a religion. It's more like a psychology. Um, and that was very impactful in, in helping me kind of get through it. But, you know, and my mental health was working out, you know, that, that, that provided stress relief, um, that taught me how to be dedicated, how to be focused, uh, how to be regimented. Um, it also gave me a confidence that I didn't have. Um, and then I, like I said, I read a lot, I wrote a lot, I journaled every single day. Um, I spent time in solitary confinement, um, which is a very, very strange place. Um, the, si- the silence of being alone with yourself and having nothing to distract you uh, for a long period of time is a very, very loud noise and you need to learn how to control it. Um, so I, I kind of fumbled my way through all of this. You know, I never really saw a, a, a professional um, in any capacity. Did you, were you in solitary confinement because like you were got in trouble and had to get put in solitary confinement? Um, I wound up in solitary confinement because I had a run in with uh, the Aryan gangs. Uh, they, they wanted me to join and I wasn't really interested in joining any gang. Um, and I was labeled a race trader and um, I stuck up for myself um, and there was a threat on my life that Boy. was, I guess, credible. Um, and they, they put me in solitary confinement um, until they could assess the threat. Um, so I sat back there for a while. Um, wow. and that's, that's really it. I mean, it's, yeah. it was, certainly wasn't by choice. <laughs> I, so just, can you go like a little bit like specifics into like what you did to work out? It's not like you had access to like gym equipment. Oh, I don't know if you did. Every... Every prison is different. Um, they all have different rules and, and different protocol. Um, for the first two years of my sentence, I did nothing but uh, calisthenics. Um, so I would get books on like every single way that you can work out with your body. You know, um, your typical push-ups. Um, I would I would even make up new push-ups. You know, like just. Um, we, we, we were forced to get really creative. Uh, so we did push-ups, pull-ups, dips, bodyweight squats, stuff like that. Um, plyometrics and, uh, and calisthenics. So explosive movements. Uh, when we were given yard time, we would run a lot. Um, we would do a lot of sprinting, um, a lot of really high, high, uh, high intensity interval training. Um, because yard time is usually like 45 minutes start to finish. Uh, and we had to accomplish a lot. So we would, and, and there were a group of guys who felt the same way, you know, and who were interested in, and we had a, a really good group of guys 
um, at all different parts, you know, through my journey. Um, guys that understood how important it was to stay physically sharp. Um, so we used to really push each other. And I eventually wound up at a prison as, as your security status drops, you, you, you go to different prisons or different wings and there's different things. And uh, eventually <clears throat> towards the end of my sentence, I wound up at a, at a prison where they had a big yard with weights. Um, and that's where I really got into weight training. Um, and my job in the prison was actually a, a recreational aid. So I was out in the yard all pretty much all day. Um, and that's where I really started to say, Hey, like, this is more than just a thing for me. Like, this is, this is a passion. You know, uh, a couple of my friends photocopied, you know, the entire, um, uh, NASM, uh, certification, all 800 pages of it and sent it to me and stuff like that. So that's when I really started to dig into that and really develop my passion. It was, it was more than just something I did to keep myself busy. Um, it became, it became an obsession. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted to see what I could do with my body um, and, and, and how I could control it and, and, and all that. And that's, once it reached that point, I, I knew that this was, this was what I was put here to do because it had helped me so much become a better person. Um, and not just physically, it just, it helped me, it helped me become a man, honestly, because up and up until prison, I was, I was a boy. I, I never, I, my father wasn't around. I didn't really have any male role models in my life. I was raised by women. I was raised by amazingly strong women. Um, but I didn't, I, I didn't know how to be a man. You know, I thought being a man was, um, get girls. You know, I thought that's what made you a man, you know, a, a young kid in college. That's, that's who I define, like somebody who was, who was cool, you know, and that was, that was it, you know? Um, so that's, that's where I learned how to be a man. I learned, I learned about responsibility and dedication and commitment to something. And, and these are all things that I, I think are really important for young men to, to understand. Um, and I wanted when I got out to share that with the world because working out really saved my life. Um, and I, I wanted, I wanted to share that with the world and that's, you know, I, I remember, I remember the day I decided that that's what I was going to do. You know, I, I, I said, when I get out of here, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a personal trainer and I'm, I'm going to be the best. And, you know, that was, that was it. And I, I haven't let that change in however many years it's been. I lost count. How old are you? How old are you now? Uh, I just turned 34. So, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, all this stuff went down. You know, yeah, I got out. Seven years ago, eight years ago, I think. It's um, yeah, about eight years ago now. Were you like jacked when you got out of prison? Like, were you? I mean, just like you must have had a crazy physical transformation over those six years. Well, I was uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went into prison at six foot, about one hundred sixty-five pounds, soaking wet. Um, I was like a, I was like a skinny fat kid. I somehow had a gut in my. My arms were the same, the same width from my wrist all the way up to my shoulder. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I put on about 40, 40, 50 pounds in prison. I went from about, you know, 165 to about 210. Um, and that was a, a lot of that was just from body weight and it was a very slow progression. So it was weight that I was able to, to maintain. Um, you know, obviously it was put on naturally and, and through a lot of hard work. Uh, and then when I got out, I just, Kind of continued to run with that, so it was a it was a very big transformation. It was a it was a very big transformation in general. You know, uh, I was physically a, a very different person, but I was inside very very different as well. You know, and and 
a much stronger person, a much, much more meaningful person um, after all of it. What was like, obviously to put on that kind of weight, you know, nutrition is a big part of fitness, you know, in prison, I imagine that's really hard to do. Yeah. It's, um, they don't feed you too much. Um, and it's not exactly the, the uh, it's not exactly uh, whole foods organic. Uh, so you, you do what you can, you know, um, fortunately, if you want to work in prison, you can work. And we had, there were, there were a group of guys that I, I aligned myself with who were all guys, you know, you, there's the misconception when you, when you go to prison that it's just full of bad people, you know? And the fact of the matter is, is my, my best friend is somebody that I met in prison. Um, and I met a lot of really good guys who just made really bad choices um, and who were aligned with me in their thought that this sucks. I don't ever want to do this again. I'm going to serve my time. I'm going to make the most of my time. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to never come back. Um, so we had a, a core group of, of guys that were all doing significant amount of time um, who we all stayed really close and we kept each other accountable and we helped each other out. Um, you know, when, when you have money in prison, and it's funny because money, money in prison means your, your, your family puts a hundred dollars on your books every two weeks, which for, a, for, for a lot of people in prison, that's, that's unheard of, you know, but for your middle class coming from the suburbs, you know, average American, that's actually, it's not a whole lot of money. I mean, and I was very, very fortunate that my family and my friends supported me. So you're able to buy extra stuff and, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole prison economy, you know, you, you, you sell packs of cigarettes, you know, they're, they're, they have a certain denominational value. So we were able to get our stuff, our hands on uh, the kitchen workers who, you know, they, they want to make a little bit extra money. So we'd get uh, 60 eggs, hard-boiled eggs every morning would, would just get delivered to the door, you know, accidentally. And we would split them up among all the guys who wanted to work out and we would all eat 10 eggs for breakfast and we would drink a gallon of milk and anything to kind of put the weight on. It's, it's, thinking back, it's actually kind of gross what we used to eat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you do what you can with, with what you have. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, um, I, I took a pretty like massive fitness transformation over the last like probably seven years. I was a skinny fat my, my whole life. And yeah. With each kid, I have three kids. Each kid, I gained 10 pounds and I just became this like just flabby guy with the gut and moves, you know. And then I, yeah. well, my brother-in-law and I actually had a bet because we both looked pretty sorry. This is like Thanksgiving 2012. And we're like, dude, let's, let's have a bet and see who's going to get in the best shape on Memorial Day. So I went from like 200 pounds and like uh, 21%, 196 pounds, 21% body fat to like 154 pounds, 8% body fat. I looked like I was dying because I was like, I'm six feet, I'm six one. But then I've slowly built it back up. And now I'm like over the course of those years, you know, and like I'm, I'm obsessed with it. And now I'm about like, you know, 200, 196 and like, you know, maybe 10%, you know, but yeah, healthy. But the one thing I will say, and what I love about fitness is it does, this is the most important thing. It's not the muscles and, you know, and it's really just teaches you discipline. Uh, it teaches you, you know, to say no, it, it, it teaches you accountability because without any of those things, you can't transform a body and you can't maintain a fit physique. And also fitness is the one thing you can't buy. You know, you, you can't buy, uh, you have to- Very, very good point. 
You know, you have to put the work in. So anyone, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect when I see someone who's in great shape because I know how much work it takes and like how much dedication it takes. But you know, more importantly, that just says something about that person's mindset. That like, you know, they have a winner's mindset, a mindset of discipline, a mindset of getting up at 4.30 in the morning and getting their workout in before they have to go to work or, you know, measuring their macros or, you know, eating boring foods, you know, the same shit every day. It just says, it, it just, it says something about someone's character, you know? And yeah. It's, and, and to, to tie that back into all of this, what I said at the beginning, talking about individual health, yeah. you know, it, if, if we really want a healthy population and a population that can, that can thwart off and resist, you know, these potential health threats. Because the fact of the matter is, is that COVID is just another virus and another bacteria in a long line of things that are coming down the pipeline at us. Viruses and bacteria have been around far longer than we have, and they're not going to just disappear. Um, and this defensive public health strategy where we're just like, oh, the world is scary and dangerous, and, you know, I can't touch anything, and, you know, we're not allowed outside until we sterilize everything. It doesn't make any sense, you know, because eventually we're going to crumble. But if you if you give people the ability to do that, to to be healthy, then these these risks and the, these events that come towards us are going to be much easier to handle, you know. Um, and that's that's the conversation that we should be having when we're talking about public health, you know, because like you said, it it makes you a better person not just physically in terms of aesthetics, but it makes you a, a better, stronger, healthier person who's a more productive person who is better able to, to fend off any sicknesses. And, and that, that radiates outward. You know, if you do that and I do that and our families do it, then our friends see it and so on, so on. And it, it, it creates a, a healthy environment. A, uh, it, it creates a strong society. Um, but nowadays we don't, public health has become a one-dimensional issue. It, it starts and ends with coronavirus. And it's like, that's, that's not, that's, that's not even insane because there's, there's public health is an extremely complex idea. And we can't just throw everything else by the wayside and say, gyms are closed, all this, all that, all that, because people come to the gym for all of the things that you just said to be a better person. Um, whether that's for their mental health or, or whatever, you know, we have a guy who comes here and he's my favorite example. His name is Joe Logue. He's one of my favorite people in the entire world. Joe Logue is, Joe Logue is a bad dude. He is a, he is an absolute warrior. He was a Marine. He is a two-time combat vet, two-time Purple Heart recipient. He was blown up by an IED twice. This is the kind of guy that you are thankful he is on your side. Um, nicest guy in the world, but when it, when it comes to warfare and, and being a soldier, he is, he is the epitome of a perfect soldier. Um, and, and, and he has seen and done a lot, just like, just like a lot of our veterans have and other people who serve the community, you know, people who serve, who serve domestically, our police, our firefighters, stuff like that. Um, our nurses who work in critical care units, you know, these are all people who, who have very, very high stress jobs, you know, and, and Joe is somebody who comes in every day, about seven o'clock, comes in every morning, 100% disability. He comes in and he absolutely crushes his workout every day. There's no cell phone, there's no texting, there's nothing. He is here and he works and works and works and works. He's gone in an hour and a half and 
every day when he walks out of the store, he's got a smile on his face. He goes home and he can be a, a father to his children and he can be a husband to his wife. And without this, he can't do the, he, he cannot do those things. He will be medicated, whether that be with something from the VA or something coming out of a, out of a, out of a liquor bottle. And he, he, he will tell you this. You know, this is a man who, who, who has to deal with a lot of things that, that he has seen and done. And without this outlet, he's not a healthy person. And to take that away from people and say, no, COVID's more important than your physical and your mental health. Um, you know, forget the fact that you have PTSD. Forget the fact that you serve your country. You know, COVID is more important. That, to me, is abhorrent. It's, it's, a, it's a crime, you know, and it's, it's very, very short-sighted in terms of public health. Yeah, I think, uh, I think at the beginning of this thing, you know, a lot of people were like, wow. And of course, your mindset has shifted from, you know, at the beginning, no one really knew about this. But after a certain point, anyone, I think more and more rational people have that viewpoint is like, you know, okay, none of this makes really any sense anymore. And, you know, they're even telling folks now, like, if, if you have like chest pain, you know, go to the hospital because people weren't even going to the hospital if they were having a heart attack, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and that's uh, that's that's insane. Yeah, two two other quick things, man. One is, um, um, what you mentioned this, I think it was in one of your posts, or maybe it was something that I saw on on TV or one of your interviews. You know, a lot of folks who have struggled with addiction, who are recovering addicts, and I would say this is like a a pretty s solid percentage of folks who are like are obsessed with fitness are recovering addicts. And Absolutely. Now, like during COVID and quarantine, like, uh, addiction must be at all at all time highs. You know, I just, you know, everyone is just drinking more and I'm sure whatever else, you know, they were indulging in just there was nothing else to do. And you were stuck in your house and you're watching the news and you're getting anxious and depressed. And, you know, all of the things that turned addicts into addicts, you know, just and not yeah. having a place to work out or that release, like you were mentioning with with Joe. You know, he's that's his mental health release to deal with PTSD and all the other stuff that he's endured throughout the course of his life. You know, for addicts, a lot of times the gym is their safe haven and what keeps them from being an addict. You know, maybe if you could just speak a couple of, you know. I mean, um, that is <laughs> the, 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 the playbook to beat addiction is go to meetings and go to the gym. Yeah. Um, and I can say that because I, I in, in, in my youth, I struggled with, with drug abuse. You know, I, was I an addict? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, you know, but I, I, I certainly abused drugs and I certainly abused alcohol. Um, so I've, I've been in those rooms, you know, and I, I've, I've struggled with my ability to say no to things in the past. And I know a lot of people and that, that is the playbook. Keep yourself busy. Give yourself a, a, a long-term task to sink your teeth into and distract you from these urges and these, these, whatever they are, these, these, these tendencies that you have replace that, that extreme need, um, to, to do things, you know, sort of with haste normally, because it, drug addiction it is, it's linked to this, this spontaneity and this, this compulsory kind of behavior where, where, you know, you, you give in to urges very quickly. You know, and that, that urge comes and you just, okay, I'm going to go get higher. I'm going to go drink. And you replace that with, all right, I'm, you know what? I'm feeling it. 
I'm going to go work out, you know, and that's, that's, that is the playbook. <laughs> like go to meetings and go to the gym. And, and I, I know hundreds, if not thousands of people that I have met throughout my life. And that is the exact playbook that they have used to not only get out of addiction, but to continuously beat it and to stay out of that threat for long periods of time, if not forever. And again, going back to, to what we just talked about with Joe, it's the same exact thing. How can, how can you deprive somebody of that? Um, knowing full well that they need it, that they absolutely need it. And knowing full well that you don't have the science to prove that what they're doing is dangerous. Because again, there's none. There's no, there's no science that says you can't go to a gym safely. Are there precautions that you need to take? Yes. Are there major um, considerations that, that need to be taken by the, by the owners of fitness facilities in order to uh, minimize and mitigate the risk as much as possible? Yes. And is there still a threat? Obviously. But can, can you do it and, and still serve the people that need you? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. I, I agree with you, man. Um, in, in New York, gyms are opening up um tomorrow you know. yes is it the same in jersey nope. no <laughs> we um we have we have no still to date no protocol uh even put forth no dates no metrics that we need to hit i was on a call with 300 other gym owners and the chief of staff for murphy last friday not the one that just happened the one before um and we were given lip service for 30 minutes chief of staff just rambled on rambled on rambled on again using fear as their as their primary thing oh, you know we, we don't want the spikes to happen and you know the, the science and the data says you know no science and data presented but the science and data says you know when people breathe heavy they're gonna you know whatever and and we were given lip service the uh the goalposts have moved so many times now that i don't even know what the next goalpost is at first it was we wanted deaths down deaths fell then we wanted hospitalizations down hospitalizations went down then we wanted cases down cases are down now they told us they want the infection rate at 0.8 and they want it to hold for and they said they don't know they said maybe two maybe three weeks we're not sure yet but then they went on to say that we don't know what it's going to look like when it opens so they haven't even they haven't even put put any thought into it yet which really to me is very indicative that again this isn't this isn't about public health this is about politics um because if it was about public health you would have had this figured out a long time ago today in new jersey this is day 160 of a 14-day shutdown if you haven't thought about it yet you aren't taking it you aren't taking it seriously and you aren't taking people's livelihood seriously Right. You know, because this, to say that, to say like Governor Murphy says that his heart breaks for small businesses and stuff like that. Well, then why haven't, why haven't you thought about it then? Right. You, you've had 160 days and you, and you haven't even put a thought into what it looks like when indoor dining reopens and when gyms reopen. You don't have any protocol. And that's, I think that's a crime because you're, you're destroying people's lives. I, I totally 1000% agree, man. You know, it's, and of course it's going to be the small business owner like yourself. That's going to put together a safe, good plan because you're immersed in that business. And obviously you want to operate your business and you want to operate it in a safe way. I think your data alone, you said, what I think it was like what? 23 
was it 25,546 visits to the facility and not a single infection. Right. I mean, that's pretty compelling. And the other thing that's odd is, you know, in Long Island, you can actually eat indoors now. Um, but, you know, in New Jersey, which isn't that far away, you can't. New York City, you can't. I mean, it's it's when, when schools were shutting down, one district was open, one district was shutting down, like neighboring towns. Like, there's just no plan. Like, no one. Has, and no consistency. Everyone's shooting from the hip, and it's like a different plan for you know 10 miles away has a different plan than you know than where we are now it's it's uh it's it's frustrating it's very frustrating as, as a business owner and i will tell you also like the whole unemployment situation you know with the, uh, the extra stimulus checks and stuff that were provided by the federal government which i'm all for if people are down and out you know they need to be able to survive sure sure absolutely the point where people were actually making more on unemployment than they were being employed so when New York City opened back up in June and some of the doctors went back to work in June, their staff didn't want to come back until because they didn't feel comfortable coming back until August 1st. Because guess what? All the stimulus money runs out July 31st. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, it's crazy. It's just not none of this stuff is logical. Like, you know, no one. It seems like there's just no thought is put into measures that are put into place. And, you know, you're someone who has a very, very well thought out plan. You're ex obviously have executed it flawlessly and meticulously. No one has got, there's not been one single case of Corona and 25,000 visits to your gym, which is insane. You know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, any business, you know, that has data to back up their, their plan, the implementation of their plan. Um, I just want to just kind of go back to something you said earlier because it's kind of been on my mind. There's so many things that you've said that, that are things that have, like resonate with me personally. You mentioned uh, core values. Like it was something about core values. Have you actually defined core values for yourself? Like, are there like four or five things that kind of define in a nutshell? Like, I, I mean, you, you, yeah, you don't have to. If you haven't, that's not a big deal. I just say, is it, but is this something that you've actually thought about? I'm just curious. Um, yeah, it, it there's they're changing and they're, they're evolving. Um, but you know, I've had the opportunity that most people haven't had to sit and think for long periods of time. And so I've, I've always kind of been into, you know, into that. And actually in, in college, I was a philosophy major. So we talked about virtues and stuff like that. Um, and, and through all of this that's been happening, I've actually connected with a, a group of people that support me of like-minded men, especially. Um, and we've started to work on some projects um, because what what we're looking at when we're looking at the big picture is what is going on in the world today and why why are there so many issues um, and and what we kind of the conclusion we came to is that that men need to step up a little bit and I, I think that we've been a little complacent and, and masculinity has been watered down um, and that I think a lot of men don't understand their place in society anymore and they don't understand that 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 they have a responsibility as men to society um and they have a responsibility to society to be good men to be virtuous men to have core values um and they don't have to be set in stone for everybody but but i think that's something that we should be talking about as men whether it's older men or, or teaching teaching the young men coming up you know the, it's, it's an important question so i think that's a really good one and i think for me, um, I think one of them is diligence and hard work. Um, growing up, I never, I never wanted to work hard. You know, um, I, ha I had a, a stepdad who made me work hard and, and kind of, you know, 
taught me the values of hard work, but I, I wasn't interested in that. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've started to really learn and appreciate the value of good hard work in whatever it is, whether that's manual labor, whether you're more of an intellectual person, um, but to, when, when, when you're given a task to, to truly give your all to it. Um, and that's, that's absolutely one of them. Um, another one for me is openness. Um, you know, I think, I think that it's important to be, to be an open book, um, and to allow yourself to, to be known by people, um, and not just on a superficial level, you know, which is why I've always been honest about my past. Um, and I, I've always shared my past, you know, and that was, that was from the get go. You know, I've spoken at over 25 high schools about what I've done. Um, I've written extensively. I, I, at one point I had a blog and I, I talk about it and everybody who knows me knows that that's who I am and that's what I did. Um, and I think that that's, that's important because it holds you accountable um, for your mistakes. You can't, when you're open and, and, and you're, you're, you're true about who you are, um, your flaws are out there for everybody. Um, so by, by nature, you're going to, to, to want to eradicate those flaws because you're open about them. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with is that we don't want to admit that we're not perfect. We don't, um, we, we don't want to take criticism, you know, so we, we hide, we hide the things that's wrong with us or we hide our shortcomings or we deny them. Um, and, uh, if I had to pick one more, um, grit would be it. And that's, that's something that I'm, I'm, learning more about recently um grit is like my new favorite thing toughness Men mental toughness and and having the mental fortitude to handle anything that gets thrown your way um be it a six-year prison sentence or whatever um but having the ability to conquer anything that is put in your path whether that be in your career, whether that be in your relationships, whether that be in your friendships, whatever it is, but to have the grit to, to hang on to something and see it all the way through, no matter how many punches you have to take um, and, and to just to get through it, because that's how you become a better person. That's how it, nothing good was ever achieved easily, you know, and, and if you have grit, you can accomplish anything. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of us don't realize. You know, we, we put limits on ourselves. And I did for years. I can, I can speak to that. I never, I never did anything amazing as a kid because I never thought I could. Because I always thought I can't do that. You know and I mean? I never played sports growing up. I've never, never really tried really hard in school because it was easier for me to just say, eh, I don't feel like doing this, than, to, than for me to fail, take punches, and get back up and keep going. You know, I was afraid to take those punches because I thought I wasn't going to be able to get back up. When in reality is with, with, with grit and by developing that grit, you know, you can, nothing can stop you. I love it, man. That's very, very David Goggins-esque. Yes, it is. Uh, yes. Inspired by, actually, uh, among, among others. You know, all, all of the stuff that you're saying, it's just, it's like, I feel like, you know, we're kind of reading from the same playbook then because, um, I think I think a lot of guys like I didn't grow up with a dad. I didn't have a dad growing up, so I kind of learned what being a father and being a husband and all what all of those things mean by like screwing up, doing it, like learning along the way, and trying to be just a better person, you know, and, and give my kids what I didn't have growing up, or you know, give my wife what my mom didn't have 
you know, for the bulk of her life. And um, I, I really, I really appreciate you, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I, I love, I love your story. Very powerful. And I love what I really do love what you're doing. And I think you're showing a, I mean, God, you're showing a tremendous amount of grit, like fighting this fight that you're fighting, man. So I think you, I think you've, you've, you've definitely won, won that one, you know, and uh, man, I'm, rooting for you. I'm rooting for you hard, man. I know a lot of people are, um, and I, I think people get the wrong idea of what your movement is really all about. Because I said, like, there is a lot of like political leaning on your, you know, riding on your back a little bit here. Um, but you're doing this for the interest of society, for like the interest of small businesses, for it's for really speaking to what the right thought processes in making a decision that affects an entire society. You know, it's like, you know, you're basically fighting the fight for all of us and especially us small business owners, man. And, you know, it just, your story speaks to me. Your, you as a human really speaks to me. I think my audience is, is really gonna, you know, come behind you as well, man, because, uh, yeah, you're an impressive man. Thank you. Thank you. It's, um, it's been a pleasure. And I, I, I love these longer format conversations, you know, the, um, it allows you to really understand each other. And I think, I think that, that the kind of work that you do with, with this podcast and what other people do with, with diving into to subjects that can't just be covered by a news article and stuff like that, I think are so important because we've, we've entered this world where everything is a soundbite or a meme or a, you know, and it's conversations like this, I think really lead to fostering a lot more understanding amongst each other. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. And, you know, I'm, I love this stuff, you know, and it's, uh, it's interesting and, you know, we're, we're just getting started here. You know, once, once we conquer this and, and go, we're, we're going to be on to the next project. And, you know, the, the goal is to, to make ourselves better and to make the world a better place, you know, one, one small battle at a time. That's what it's all about, man. Well, I'm gonna come. I'm definitely gonna come down there for a workout, man. Our doors are open, and they're they're staying open. <laughs> all right, brother. Well, thank you so much again for your time, man. Appreciate Absolutely. It. Thanks a lot. You have a great day. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Doctor Mudgill podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.